0: Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So we are moving our way through our series in adoption And uh, this week, and Lord willing next week, we will be finishing it up. Uh, This week and next week we'll be in Romans chapter eight where we see the last two uses of adoption. Uh, And then I will be away for a couple of weeks. Um, We'll have Elder uh, Joe Zielinski filling in for me on the 13th and we will have Alex here filling in on the sixth. You're supposed to smile, you look nervous. (laughs) <laughs> who is also a seminarian. So think of Alex when you think about whether you might want to contribute to the seminarian fund that Pastor John just spoke about. I'll be getting ready to start that soon. And so we'll pray for him. Um, and so this morning we're going to be looking at uh, Romans 8, uh, 1 through 12, and I just, or excuse me, 12 through 17. I just want to read that to us now and we'll pray and then we'll jump in. Paul writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit and dwells in us and leads us. We ask now that you would through your spirit shine light on your word for our understanding and for our application we would pray your word and grow through your word and be transformed more and more into the image of your son. We pray this in his name, amen. This is an old movie, but I imagine that many of you are at least somewhat familiar with this. It was a box office smash way back in 2000, 23 years ago now set in Roman times and it tells the story of a Roman general named Maximus, who is played by Russell Crowe here, who through a, a series of rather unfortunate events and corruptions of the king's plans for him, went through uh, a great deal of, of challenges and he went from being a respected and feared general of the Roman army to a gladiator, a slave, There's a scene in the movie where Maximus is sitting with a man named Cicero, his former servant when he was a general in the Roman army, and his friend, and he asks him, in a rather reflective tone, because now his status has changed. He was a general, and now he's just a gladiator and a slave, and he asks him, rather reflectively, he says, Cicero, do you find it hard to do your duty? Cicero pauses and contemplates for a moment, and then says this, "'Sometimes I do what I want to do. "'The rest of the time, I do what I have to.'" Cicero says that because he was a servant, no longer for Maximus, who would seem treated Cicero with a great deal of kindness and respect, but now for the new king, who was actually the son of the former king. His name was Commodus, and he was an evil man. He killed his father, stole the throne, A position that had been reserved for Maximus, and Commodus knew it, tried to kill Maximus early in the movie, and they were set as arch rivals. But what we gain from this is that neither Maximus nor Cicero's life was their own. They were both servants, slaves. Try and imagine, if you will, what it must have been like to live like that, to be a slave to be hopelessly bound to the will of another, worse yet, bound to the will of another who has no love or respect or affection or care for you, only for themselves. What would be the single greatest wish you could ever hope to get in such a situation? I imagine you'd be thinking, well, freedom, of course, and I would agree. But let me ask a slightly different question. Could you think of anything better than freedom? Can you think of an even more precious gift to give a slave than merely their freedom? It's not uncommon to hear of prisoners, specifically long-term prisoners after being released from prison, that is after gaining their freedom, finding themselves to be lost in the culture. They struggle to figure out what this new identity looks like because it's not what they've been for so, so long. Now there's lots of possibilities as to why this is, but probably one of the biggest hurdles for them is that they were once categorized as prisoners and now they're categorized as free. They're no longer prisoners and this is challenging for them because it's new, It's, it's foreign to them. They're struggling with who they are. So while freedom is indeed a great gift, to give, of course, I'll ask again, can you think of something even better? What is an even greater gift to give a slave than freedom? Or if I could ask it slightly differently, what is a gift that comes along with freedom but is even greater? The answer, identity. Knowing who you are Because knowing who you are strikes at really one of the most fundamental aspects of our very humanity itself, our deep-seated need to belong, to not be ostracized or cast out, rather to be accepted, to be valued, even more than that, to be loved. Now, maybe you recall that the idea of slavery is not new. We've touched on it before in our series. We, we mentioned it and talked about it in a, in a good bit of detail when we were in Galatians a few weeks ago. Paul wrote that, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. And when we were there, we said that the notion of slavery uh, was something that was sadly common in Scripture. Israel was, an, Israel was enslaved in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, we see that the gospel saves us from spiritual enslavement and specifically Paul had just been speaking about the subject of enslavement in chapter 7 of Romans it's in a number of places in scripture but he had just been speaking about it in Romans His enslavement to sin and these are the verses that come right before our text Paul is there speaking about the relationship between law and sin and he asks this question he says did that which is good now he's talking about the law He says, did that which is good bring death to me? And he answers as he does in that style, by no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, what Paul is saying is, we have a sin nature and then the law comes along and sort of gives that sin nature something to combat something to conflict with, something to break. And so the law acts as a way of sort of drawing out your sin nature, calling it out, as it were, if you you would allow that. And so Paul says that this is the purpose of the law, and he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. You hear that language, language of slavery. Paul says, I'm sold under sin. He's enslaved to it. In fact, chapter 7 of Romans, uh, somewhat famously, is the place where Paul expresses his deep struggle with sin, saying that the thing he wants to do, which is to be obedient to God, is the very thing he can't do or seem to not be able to do. And the thing he hates to do, that's the thing he wants to do. From there, he gives even more enslavement language, concluding this, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. More enslavement language. Paul is made captive to sin. And this is where Paul cries out at the end of chapter seven, uh, oddly, with both great despair and hopelessness and great joy, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There is the, the... desperation and hopelessness. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, and there is the joy and hope. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the context of what precedes our verses. Paul is wrestling with this through chapter 7, and these are the words that come right before our shift to Romans 8, which we might remember last week we talked about was this shift where uh, We see life in the spirit. That was what the ESV study Bible entitled the first half of Romans 8. And we said that uh, Paul uses the word spirit just five times in the first seven seven chapters of Romans. But when he gets to chapter 8, some 21 times the word spirit is used. And so there's a, a, a paradigm shift when we get to chapter 8, a significant one. What I want to do, actually, is we read 12 through 17, but allow me to read verses 1 through 11 as the, the, the pretext for that. I want you to just listen for how many times you hear the word spirit, and also listen to what Paul is trying to say by uh, elevating this, the presence of the spirit. So in the wake of this wretched man who, uh, that I am, who will save me, who will deliver me from this body of death, Paul now says... You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. That's a lot of times to hear the word Spirit. Spirit. 21 in total for the chapter 11 of them. they right there in the first 11 verses. But what's far more important than merely counting the number of times Paul says it is what is his argument? What's he trying to say? And here's what he's doing. Remember chapter 7. Paul has moved us from enslavement to sin to freedom in Christ. He's moved us from condemnation under sin to the removal of all condemnation under Christ. And he's used the imagery of the law to make this point, contrasting the law of sin and death with the law of the spirit of life. In other words, Paul is telling us that God in his son has set us free from our enslavement to sin and death through the spirit of life. Let's just take a moment to think back to our original question. What is an even more precious gift than freedom? What did we say? Identity, a sense of belonging. Paul touches on this a little differently when he writes to the Ephesians. He says this, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, that's spiritual Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You had no sense of belonging. You were foreigners and alienated. But now, he says in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul is telling us here in Romans 8 that if we set our minds on the flesh, that that just leads to death. But if we set our minds on the Spirit, we gain life and peace. In fact, he says plainly that the flesh and the Spirit are at war with each other. And then he shifts in verse 9 and says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you and this caveat takes up verses 9, 10 and 11 and it leaves us with a rather important challenge, another question if you will and one that I I believe we need to answer before we can consider what Paul has to say to us in our verses this morning does the spirit of God dwell in us I want to give you just three Sort of diagnostic helps. So three questions to think about to sort of answer that. When we, when we come up with this, uh, we come up to this challenge of conviction in the scriptures, how can we answer that? How can we know that? Here's the first one. Do we love God's word enough to be in, in it every day? Now, for many of us, we'll say we love God's word and we mean it. But the evidence is whether we're in it every day. Can we say that we have an increasing love for God's word? Do we value it for what it really is, which of course is invaluable? Do we see it as essential to our life, critical to our spiritual growth? For that matter, we could say it this way. Do we deeply value spiritual growth, growth, which is of course dependent on the indwelling spirit and the word of God? Does the word of God boil down for you to something that we simply need to master, to understand, or is it something that God gives to us through the wisdom and insight of his spirit that proves itself invaluable every day through such things as spiritual warfare and worship? We should worship every day. You can think of places like Psalm 119.11 that tells us to treasure God's word in our heart that we may not sin against him, Or Colossians 3.16 that charges us to let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. Do we love God's word enough to be in it every day? Here's the second one. Are we confessing our sins every day? Hope you're picking up the pattern. Here's an interesting and frightening thought. For many of us, we tend not to confess what we do not feel conviction over. Let me say that again. We tend to not confess what we don't feel conviction over. And if we've grown cold in our love for God, then we tend to not confess sin. We find ourselves in a very, very dangerous uh, place spiritually. Paul refers to this in a number of places, but in 1 Timothy 4, he speaks of it as the searing of our conscience. Now, maybe as we talk about this, this is true for you. Maybe you're coming to that realization right now. What do you do? How do you respond to the, well, I'm not sure that I love God's word enough or am I confessing sin every day? And the answer to this is a simple one. We pray. We pray that God would forgive us of our sins, pour out his mercy on us, Pray that God will revive our conscience such that we would again have a sensitivity to his Spirit's leading and conviction. Pray in keeping with the Lord's Prayer that we wouldn't be led into the temptation of sin, that we'd be delivered from the evil one. And pray with, with confidence that if we confess our sins, he is indeed faithful to forgive us, as we learn in First John. Pray and be regularly confessing sin. For John tells us that if we say we have no sin, we're liars and the truth of God isn't in us. And if we're not confessing sin, it's essentially as if we're saying that we don't have any. Are we confessing our sin and are we doing it every day? One last one for you. Do we pray every day? It's been said that the intensity or lack thereof of our prayer life is very reflective of our faith. If we deeply believe in God as our savior in and through his son Jesus and applied to us by his spirit, well then we would pray, right? Regularly, every day and we would be praying formally every day, and we'd be praying informally every day, and we'd be praying over really serious things every day, and we'd even be praying over trivial things every day, because God is not bothered by the frequency of or level of importance of our prayers. Nowhere near as much as he would be bothered by the absence of our prayers. It is not the unanswered prayer that should concern us most, as I've said to you before, but the unoffered prayer. Does the Spirit of God dwell within us? And if we can either answer yes to this question, or we find, our place, find ourselves in a place where we're crying out to God to help us to be able to answer yes to that question, then and only then are we ready to hear what Paul has to say to us in our verses this morning, Romans eight, twelve through seventeen. Here's what we read in the first of those verses. So then, brothers, being that you do in fact have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, if that's true, then you are debtors, you are you are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God, excuse me, are sons of God. I just wanna pause here and just ask you, did you you hear that? All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Sons in the Son, as I've been saying in this series. Did you get that? If you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, you are a child of God. To have the Spirit of God is to have sonship. The two are inseparable. In other words, there is no such thing as the status of a believer who is not also a child of God. So maybe we can ask the question once again, what is an even greater gift to a slave than freedom? Sonship. What's greater than freedom? Even even that? Family. Let's look at what Paul says next. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see what Paul is doing here. He's juxtaposing slavery and adoption. Now, earlier he had juxtaposed the law of sin and death with the law of the Spirit and life, and now he's juxtaposing slavery and adoption. In fact, we could say it this way. The greatest gift that God gives to us as slaves to sin is not merely freedom, but adoption. And again, these are inseparable. The spirit of slavery, as Paul says here, only produces fear, but the spirit of adoption produces family. Calvin said that this is the special effect of the spirit to stir us up to call on God with confidence and freedom that which he goes on to describe as the paternal mercy of God. And so what we see here is that this name given to the spirit, the spirit of adoption, is the name of none other than the Holy Spirit. The spirit of adoption is the spirit, the Holy Spirit. And to borrow Paul's language from Second Corinthians 3, where the spirit of the Lord is, "There is freedom, but as we see here, not only freedom but also family." And notice that Paul here, like he does in Galatians, describes this profound familial blessing by observing our privilege of calling God Father. And there's something rather striking that I want to draw your attention to about this. There's lots of studies that have been done on the word Abba. And they're conflicting, of course, no great surprise there. But, but what we all know is this, the word Abba is only used three times in the New Testament. Once here in Romans, once in Galatians, where Paul uses it again, and the other time is with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We read about it in Mark 14. They went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So we have two uses by Paul and one by Jesus. Now here's the thing that I want to draw your attention to. There's countless uses of the word father in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and a great many of them in the New Testament, are by Jesus himself, referring to God as father. But the vast majority of those are uh, the word pater, which we get the word paternal from, right? Only once does he use this word. Only once does Jesus use this very deeply intimate word, Abba. And so when Paul not once but twice describes our adoption as consisting in our shared privilege that Jesus has to call out to God as our Father with such deep intimacy, we need to see that. We need to see the uniqueness and the sheer majesty of that gift and privilege, that status change, greater than just freedom, but family. Our status as God's children adopted into the family of God, receiving deep personal and intimate access to our Heavenly Father is the greatest gift, far greater than mere freedom alone. And why does God gift this to us? Well, there are many reasons, but in large part because of the sovereignty of his power to enable him to do that and because of the perfections of his love. We might also ask, well, what are the benefits What are the benefits of this, of course, besides the privilege of being able to call him Abba like Jesus does? Again, there are probably many, but let me just give you a few to think about. The first one would be that we have protection. The protection of God as our king and as our father, more importantly. To have the indwelling spirit of God, that is the the spirit of adoption, to be adopted into the family of God means that we have the protection of God. And while all earthly parents are guilty of biases towards their children, some more than others, and we all have that, God does not. All of his children are perfectly and equally loved and equipped to be conformed to his image. All of God's children enjoy the absolute protection that comes from belonging to the family of God. There's a story that is told and some debate whether it's anecdotal or or actually historical there's a date that goes along with it it takes place in 1834 and that makes people think maybe maybe this is true Uh, but nonetheless the story goes like this there is an elderly woman who is sickly and she reaches out to her pastor and asks the pastor if he would pay her a visit and of course he says by all means I'll come and pay you a visit But in order to get to her house, he has to pass through this very remote, deeply wooded area known uh, for robbers and thieves and murderers to hang out and ambush people. But that doesn't deter him. He makes his way to her house and he he gets through that dark wooded area unscathed and has a fruitful visit with her, prays with her and, and everything goes well. And then he turns around and goes back through the same path, again unscathed, everything seems okay. A couple of years pass, and he finds himself having a discussion with two gentlemen who had since that time come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Those two guys were the robbers in the woods at that time. And they asked him, they said, um, do you recall traveling through this wooded area a couple of years ago? And he goes, yeah, 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 I remember that. He says, um, we were going to attack you, but we noticed that you had two knights with you in full armor protecting you. Who were those guys? The pastor is perplexed and says, I I was alone. Oh, no, 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 they said, no, no, we saw them. And that's what kept us from attacking you. And so the point of the story is kind of a simple one. God has his protection over his children, and not because he's a minister, because every one of God's children is equally protected. You have spiritual protection, and that doesn't mean you don't suffer because we do suffer. But when we suffer as God's children, we suffer for purpose, as Paul is going to speak to in just a few minutes. It's to conform us to the image of His Son. And so we have the protection of God as our Father. We also have the confident assurance that our Heavenly Father finishes what He begins in us. This is a benefit of being a child of God, an imperfect child of God who will eventually be fully and perfectly conformed to the image There are a number of places where Paul touches on this. One of them is also in Romans 8, just a bit later. We don't want to spend much time on it, but I just want to draw your attention to it quickly. Paul writes later in Romans 8, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, as I said, we'll discuss that in a bit more detail next week, Lord willing. But for now, let's just notice two things. First, God finishes what he starts. God never predestines and later decides not to call or to justify. He never justifies and later decides not to glorify. God always finishes what he starts. Maybe you're finding yourself in a bit of a rut in a dry season. God isn't done, he's not done yet. Maybe you find yourself feeling spiritually dry or apathetic, well of course as we said before, pray. Pray earnestly, pray every day, be in the word every day. Why, because God is faithful and he is not done yet. In fact, the second point I want to draw out further demonstrates this, and it says this. Here's the point. Notice that the tense of all those verbs is in the past. From God's perspective, that is outside of time, these things have already been sealed. They're already done. You are already predestined and already called and already justified and already glorified in one sense from the perspective of God. As challenging as that may be to think about. And so we've seen and noted the protection of God uh, for His children as His children, and the assurance that He will complete what He's begun in us, as He says here in Romans 8, as well as uh, Philippians 1:6, for example. Let me give you one last one: the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Spirit of adoption, is what we want to note here. We could talk about gifts, of course, we could do that as well, but but each of us has different gifts, and those gifts are for the church. While the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of the Spirit's indwelling presence both for the church and for our sanctification. Now, of course, there's a lot more we could say here, but let's just touch on those benefits and move on to our final verses in our passage this morning. Paul writes, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit, again, the spirit of adoption, bears witness with our spirit that we are in fact adopted, that we're children of God. And what he also makes inescapably linked to our adoption here is our status as heirs. Heirs is familial language. And notice that we are heirs of God as Abba, as Father, and heirs with Christ as our elder brother. But then Paul throws this in. He says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And this suffering is actually part of the process of our being conformed to the image of Christ, of our sanctification. We touched on it before in Romans eight, we're predestined, we're called, we're justified, we're glorified in Christ. But in between being justified and being glorified is this process of being sanctified, conformed to the image of Christ. And this includes suffering. In fact, we should say that the question of suffering could also be a fourth help in diagnosing whether or not the spirit of God dwells within us. Do we suffer for the gospel? And how do we know that we suffer for the gospel? Because suffering doesn't necessarily have to include martyrdom, but it can and often does in many places in the world even today. But there are other forms of suffering that may be included. Do we suffer shame for our faith? Do we suffer ostracizing by family and friends because of our faith? Are we willing to share the gospel? Or do we choose to not share the gospel because of fear of rejection or shame? Or that we may have to endure some form of suffering in order to do so. Do we suffer for the gospel? Or to put it more succinctly, do we suffer for Christ? Because he most certainly suffered for us. And if we don't suffer for him, what must change? And the answer to that question lies in this, in in the very core of our mission for being here. We're here to be witnesses for Christ, to go and make disciples, to bear witness to him. And, And that's the role that we have as Christians here on earth, to go and make disciples. But I also want us to see that this suffering component here has a definitive now aspect to it concerning the kingdom. This is what happens now. And now in the not yet of the kingdom, now suffering. In the not yet, no suffering. And as we look forward to our final week in this series, next Sunday, Lord willing, we can anticipate that Paul actually begins with these words in verse 18 and following, for I consider that the sufferings that he just mentioned of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, the very nature of our time here revolves around the idea of life and the spirit both in the here and now of the kingdom life, that is the life of still struggling against our sin nature, as well as the hope of our eternal status as fully Informed, glorified children of God. As we close our time and come to the table, let me remind you that the greatest gift God gives us is freedom in Christ, but that, that freedom comes with our identity in Christ, our new identity, gifted by the Holy Spirit. And Paul calls the spirit of adoption. In other words, there is no separating your status as Christian from your status as child of God. And the richness of this finds its greatest declaration in privilege, in your privilege, of being able to call out to the almighty, sovereign, holy, eternal God, not just as Savior, and not even just as Lord, but as Father, as Abba, Father. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, We thank you for this time in your word and we thank you for this great hope and privilege that comes with us being gifted to be children. We pray Lord now that as we transition from the time of being under your word written to coming before your visible word at the table that you would bless that time, seal it in our hearts and in our minds. May we trust in you in these things and we pray this in your name Jesus, amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.